Chapter 11 of The Great Sinners of the Bible. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Sinners of the Bible by Louis Albert Banks. Chapter 11 The Cowards and the Giants. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. It was unnecessary for these cowards to have added that last phrase, and so we were in their sight. If a man has no self-respect, he may be very sure that no one else will respect him. A man who feels like a grasshopper is pretty certain to look like a grasshopper. His cowardice will make itself evident enough to his enemies. Small men loom large when they have great courage, but giants are like grasshoppers when fear has taken possession of them. These ten cowards brought back as enthusiastic a report about the beauty and fertility of the country as did Joshua and Caleb. They admitted that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. They came back loaded down with pomegranates and figs and grapes. Indeed, they found one vineyard in the valley of the brook of Eshkol, where the grapes grew in such enormous clusters that they broke off a cluster and hung it over a staff which two men carried between them. But all the enthusiasm over the richness of the soil and the desirability of the land as a home for their people, was more than overbalanced by their fears. They declared that the enemy was entrenched in walled cities and that they were people of enormous size. The men were giants, whose fathers were giants before them, and so mighty were these men of Anak that they made the Hebrews feel like grasshoppers in their presence. Therefore, it was useless, in their opinion, to undertake to go in and possess the land, even though God had promised it to them. Their conclusion was that God himself was not strong enough to whip these giants with such little men as they were. There were two men, however, out of that dozen spies, who were not of the grasshopper grade. Joshua and Caleb had taken in the size of the giants as well as the rest, but not feeling like grasshoppers themselves, but rather like the courageous men that they were, they took a different view of the outlook. They declared that Moses and his army, under the divine leadership, were easily able to overcome these giants, and urged that they go up at once and possess the country. But the ten cowards overruled them, and succeeded in turning back the people to wander for forty years in the wilderness, suffering intolerable hardships when they might have entered the land of promise and possessed it inside of forty days. It is interesting to notice that these cowards were all destroyed by the plague, and the precious bodies that they were so careful of, and which they were so afraid to risk in fight under God's direction, were, very shortly, in their graves. The two brave men of the lot were the only ones that lived to see the final conquest of Canaan. 
God is not always on the side of the strongest battalions, as Napoleon sneered, but he is ever on the side of the men of brave and noble purpose, for they are ever on his side. God has so ordered the universe that the bravest thing a man can do is also the safest in a worldly as well as a spiritual sense. We have here a very interesting illustration of what is going on today. Many people in Christian lands have come up so close to the promised land of a Christian life that they have become fascinated with its beauty and enjoyment. They have seen enough of the spiritual pomegranates and figs and grapes that grow in the land of Canaan, the land of forgiveness and Christian communion, to greatly attract them, and they long to enter. They will agree to anything you say about the desirability of a Christian life. They admit that it is the happiest and most secure life to live. They declare their own desires to be Christians and hope sometime to enter and live and die in the midst of the joyful experiences of the Christian. But just now, the difficulties are too great and the giants are too large for them to undertake such a conquest. And so, while they look longingly on the vineyards of Eshkol, they wander back into the wilderness with its stinging serpents, its deadly enemies, and its graves of lust. I am persuaded that I speak to some here now who are exactly in this position. The Christian life seems to you, as it is, the only true and happy life for anybody to live. Some day you expect to be a Christian, but you are putting it off to some indefinite time in the future. You are like the poet who sings, There are wonderful things we are going to do some other day and harbors we hope to drift into some other day. With folded hands and oars that trail, we watch and wait for a favoring gale to fill the folds of an idle sail some other day. We know we must toil if ever we win some other day. But we must say to ourselves, there's time to begin some other day. And so, deferring, we loiter on, until at last we find withdrawn the strength of the hope we leaned upon some other day. And when we are old and our race is run some other day, we fret for the things that might have been done some other day. We trace the path that leads us where the beckoning hand of grim despair leads us yonder out of here some other day. No man deals wisely with any giant sin that stands in his way, who does not seize hold upon it at once and throttle it. A man recovering from a debauch was moaning to himself, I must quit, I must reform, I must stop. Don't say that, boss, put in a colored man. That's no good. Say, I am quit, I is reformed, I is done gone stopped. Do it now, boss, and then you won't forget it. That colored man had good, honest common sense. The sin which you are putting off to some future time to battle with is growing more giant-like every day of delay. But in thinking of becoming a Christian, and of the difficulties that stand in the way, we must never lose sight of the divine help. That which made the difference between Caleb and Joshua and the ten cowards among the spies 
was that Caleb and Joshua had great faith in God and believed that God would keep his word and make their arms victorious over the giants. All that it was necessary for them to do was to obey God and go forward, doing their best. These other men would not have felt like grasshoppers in the presence of the sons of Anak if they had had the consciousness that God was with them to give them power to overcome their enemies. So you are not asked to become a Christian alone, nor to pursue the Christian life in your own strength. You are to have a mighty reinforcement in the presence of the Divine Spirit, strengthening you against every battle with temptation. God will take that fearful spirit out of your heart when you obey Him and forsake your sins, and will give you a new heart. And the giants will seem like grasshoppers when you face them in this new courage and with this new assurance of God's alliance with you. This power and willingness of God to change a man's heart and renew his nature is not a new thing, but is as old as God's dealings with men. Away back in the book of Job, you may find this remarkable description of the transformation of the soul. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him, and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him. And he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. It is utterly futile to undertake a Christian life without this divine conversion, this surrender of yourself to the leadership of Jesus Christ, who is not only our Savior, but our Captain in all our warfare against the giants of sin. The divine exaltation that will come to us in such fellowship will cause us to rejoice in the face of the enemy. Spurgeon was once out riding, and was laughing as he went at the top of his voice. A friend met him, and asked the cause of his mirth. Oh, answered the great-hearted Christian, I was just thinking about, my grace is sufficient. I was thinking how big grace is, and how little I am. But, after all, the initiative is in our hands. God would not give the promised land to the Hebrews unless they entered the land in obedience to him and fought for it. That is in accord with universal law. That was a remarkable scene in the life of Joan of Arc, when, as a girl of seventeen, she was brought into the presence of all the great priests and cardinals of the kingdom and submitted to a most severe and searching examination. One of the priests said, Joan, you say that it is the will of God that the king should be crowned. If it is the will of God, why, then he will be crowned, and he needs not your help. I said Joan, it is true that it is the will of God, and he giveth the victory, but men must fight. Garibaldi said something very much like that at Naples in 1860. My children, 
Liberty is from God. Liberty is from heaven. But, he added, you must all rise. You must fight for Italy. So, freedom from sin, salvation from the guilt of sin, is through Jesus Christ. But we ourselves must rise and fight with him for the overthrow of every giant of evil in our hearts and in the world about us. It need not take a long time. This Christian Canaan may be entered by you at once if you are ready to obey God. Bishop Newman tells an interesting story of the conversion of that great citizen of Ohio, Chief Justice Chase. Bishop Newman had observed, during the time he was pastor of Metropolitan Church, Washington, that when he was administering communion, Chief Justice Chase always retired. He was impressed that he ought to talk with him about the matter, so he asked him why he did not come to the sacrament, to which he replied, I am not a Methodist, and I am not good enough. Dr. Newman replied, We will omit consideration of the former point and speak of the latter. Then he turned to the communion invitation and read, Ye that do truly and earnestly repent of your sins. Stop right there, said the Chief Justice, and for an hour they talked upon repentance. Soon after, as he was administering the communion, Mr. Chase was present. After all had communed who seemed to wish to do so, Dr. Newman waited still and said, Is there another who wishes to come? If you feel worthy, you are not fit to come. If you feel unworthy, but repent of sin and trust in Christ, come. With that, the Chief Justice arose and with bowed head came to the altar. But instead of kneeling, he fell down upon the floor. The whole congregation lingered and prayed for a soul that was seeking God. By and by, the minister administered the communion to him. When he rose upon his feet, he held his head erect, and the smile of forgiving grace was on his face. Not long after, Judge Miller, on the eve of his departure for Europe, came to see Mr. Chase. The latter took him with him in his carriage to visit a sick friend. Miller turned and said to him, How are you? Said he, Brother Miller, I am well in mind, feeble in body, but Christ is my satisfying portion. I have given up all to him. Well, said Miller, I wish I could say that. I have been trying for eighteen years to solve the problem. Said Chase, I have solved it, and Christ is my satisfying portion. Two or three days later, they went to call him in the morning, and there was no answer. The Chief Justice was dead. How happy the solution of life's great problem on that Sunday morning a few weeks before. How happy it would be for you if I could arouse you to now solve the same great problem in the same way. You are standing outside of the promised land, hesitating to enter because of difficulties that seem so giant-like in their proportions that you are afraid to confront them. But, thank God, you are not asked to confront them alone, and Jesus Christ will receive you, sinful as you are, and give you a new heart of courage and love, and strengthen your arm to fight, 
so that you may come out conqueror over all foes that stand in your way. You will find the name of Jesus, a name before which every giant of sin will fall. One of the magazines has a new telling by William Converse of an old story of the Crusades. It is the story of how Gilbert Beckett was taken prisoner by a Saracen emir and was for years his slave. For a long time he was treated with great cruelty, but finally, one day when he was being beaten, Roiza, the daughter of the emir, interfered in his behalf, and afterward, through her pleading with her father, his lot was greatly improved. As time went on, he came to love this young girl, and the maiden herself loved the crusader, whose life she had saved, with even a greater devotion. The emir at length discovered his daughter's secret, and more than that, that the young man had explained and defended to her the doctrine of the cross. Fearful for his daughter's faith, he purposely gave the young captive a chance to escape. He sent him on horseback to a distant city. The youth determined to gain his freedom. He parted tenderly with the Saracen maid. Whatever her suspicions, she kept them quiet. She met him on horseback as he was ready to set out and gave him a silken purse into which she had woven some of her own hair. He laid it next to his heart and sped away to return no more. An adventurous voyage brought him to London. He wrote to the emir that he would send him a ransom of gold. Englishmen, he declared, are like birds, for, though caged within gilded wires, they love freedom. The daughter sank under the eclipse of her hope and began to languish. Her father was anxious. The healing men were summoned, but could not minister to a mind diseased. All at once the maiden rallied and began to gain strength and vigor. A new purpose had seized her. Her lover had not fled because he did not love her, but because freedom was a man's true life. She would go to him. She soon set sail for England. From the port she sent a note to her father. She knew but two English words, Gilbert and London. From port to port she found her way by using the latter word. She at length reached the English metropolis. Then came the great difficulty, to find among that seething mass of humanity one man whose Christian name only she knew. Her Arabic was gibberish to those English-speaking people. To all the crowds that surrounded her, regarding her as one who seemed crazed with some sorrow, she spoke but one word. Gilbert! Gilbert! she cried as she went from street to street. Here comes the Gilbert maiden, people would exclaim to one another as they saw her. One day she strayed to Cheapside. As usual, a crowd gathered. It is the Gilbert Saracen maid, cried the people around. But then a strange thing happened. Out from a house rushed a servant of Gilbert Beckett, who strode along, pushing the throng aside, and came close to the maiden. It is she, he exclaimed in glad recognition. I thought I could not mistake. It is the Saracen maid. They told him she had been calling for Gilbert. 
and Gilbert she shall see, to his joy and hers, as quickly as she can cross the street and get within yon gate and door, said the servant. The meeting was unspeakably glad. That which Gilbert had never dared to believe or ask had come to pass. Rowesa had given up her father's home for him. Later she also gave up the Muslim faith and became a happy Christian. Gilbert Beckett and Rowesa were married. Gilbert became sheriff of London, and the Saracen maid became the mother of Thomas E. Beckett, the famous chancellor and martyr. The two talismanic words that brought triumph to the Saracen maid were Gilbert and London. But there are two talismanic words greater than those. They are Jesus and heaven. I care not how far away in the desert of sin you are, nor how hopeless and despairing your present outlook for a holy and a pure life, if you will turn your face away from your sin with these two talismanic words upon your lips and in your heart, you shall in God's good time stand before the gates of heaven, and they will open to your weary feet at the blessed name of Jesus. Take them as your watchwords from this very hour. End of chapter 11 Read by John Warren Hart West Milford, New Jersey April 5, 2022